You may be seated. We're continuing today in Daniel chapter 9. Thus far in this chapter, we have heard Daniel pray, pleading with God to shed his mercy and to fulfill the promise we find in Jeremiah to restore Israel. We find God in the latter portions of chapter 9 so swiftly and immediately, even before Daniel said amen, answering Daniel's prayer, and we considered the reason that God responded so quickly to Daniel. And then last week, we looked at the first of three insights that God gave to Daniel in chapter 9, that insight from last week being the timetable that God had appointed to fulfill the promise of restoration, to reconcile completely his people to himself and to bring them out of bondage. And now today we want to focus on the 70th week and the remaining two insights that God gave to Daniel, those insights being the work that had to be accomplished in order, in order for a complete and full redemption to be provided for God's people. And then secondly, we want to look at the fulfillment What does the term 77s really mean from a theological point, that that point that would so encourage us uh, today? You'll find a sermon outline on page 5. Follow along with me as we read Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin... And to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come once again to this passage, I am reminded of my need for God the Holy Spirit to illumine my mind and my heart to understand this prophecy. I'm reminded of my need God, the Holy Spirit, to empower me as a preacher. And as your people gathered here today, we are reminded of our need for God, the Holy Spirit, to apply this precious word to our hearts, because it really does make a difference in our living today to know of your love for us and this beautiful, wonderful plan of restoration that you've unfolded in this prophecy. So teach us today, God the Holy Spirit, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Renee and I had a wonderful privilege back in the in the first part of the 90s, I really can't remember to date, to, to tour the Holy Land. And that wonderful privilege was a gift from this congregation to us. And so much about that trip has impacted me, and impacted me then, and has impacted me over the years. It's helped me to see the Bible come alive, especially in the Old Testament, as we went to so many places that have such biblical significance. It's, it's allowed me to see in my mind's eye more as I read scripture about Jesus and, and just his ministry there in that little plot of land we know as the Holy Land. And just to, just to understand a little bit more about the geography and the places, it really has been a great, great help to me. And one of the most memorable things, and you may not believe this, but I'm telling you it's so, so believe it. One of the most memorable things are some rocks that I touched. Many of you have heard of the Western Wall in the city of Jerusalem at the, the, the base of the Temple Mount. It's a huge rock wall with huge stones. It's also called the Wailing Wall. You may know it by that name. It is one of the most, if not the most, sacred place for Jews. And I remember the day that I wanted to go to the Wailing Wall, and we were able to go, and I I put my little head covering on that they have those there, their throwaways for all the tourists that come. And I went in... And I just stood there and just put my hand on those stones. Now, why would I be so moved by doing that? I've got rocks all over my backyard. I'm not moved by them. I've moved them. (laughs) And the reason that's so significant is because those very stones were put there in the day of Solomon in the 10th century. When Solomon's temple, the house of God that David wanted to build but was not allowed to build, that privilege was given to his son Solomon. And I was able to touch those stones that have been there since the 10th century. Now, you may not be all that thrilled about that, but I'm still thrilled by that wonderful privilege that I had. But here's a question. Why are... Stones placed in what looks like a wall that is the base of the modern Temple Mount today. The Temple Mount is the Mount, Mount Moriah, on which Solomon's Temple was built. But why is the base of that, not the top of that Temple Mount, the most sacred place of Judaism? That's my question. And so this question that I have for us today, the question that I'm asking In 2016, the answer has much to do with what God revealed to Daniel in the 6th century B.C. about why the top of the Temple Mount would not be the most sacred place of Judaism, but rather the base of the Temple Mount 
that amounts to basically a rock wall by which Jews from all over the world send their prayers, and Jews that are in Jerusalem take the prayers, the little pieces of paper, and place them in the cracks and crevices of that wailing wall, lamenting something. What might they be lamenting? Hoping for something for which might they be hoping? We find the answer in the answer (laughs) that God gave to Daniel in the 6th century. And I want to lead us into that discovery of that answer uh, today. And it has to do much about the work that was necessary for a full and complete redemption for God's people. And so last week we began looking at these three insights that God gave Daniel as we look specifically at chapter 9, verse 25. And in that prayer that Gabriel came and delivered to Daniel, God told Daniel, I have a timetable. The timetable is given to you in, in the uh, term 77s. And we further considered last week that that 77s, that time period would unfold in three stages. The first stage that we find in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 is seven sevens, one through seven sevens. And that would be basically the time that the exiles would be brought back to Jerusalem from their 70 years bondage in Babylon. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, both the temple and the wall and the city would be rebuilt. And we know the city was completely restored by 400 B.C. And then after that, seven sevens, there would be another period of time that we find in verse 25. Sixty-two sevens. And that's the period of time from the completion and the restoration of the physical temple and city there in Jerusalem all the way up until... The coming of an anointed one and this coming of the anointed one and initiates the last stage, which is the 70th week, which will be the final period and our topic today. And during that 70th week, the anointed one will complete six works, and we find those spelled out in verse 24. And those six works will be accomplished through the events that we find spelled out in verse 26, and then with greater detail, the same events described in verse 27. So that's somewhat of our roadmap today as we look at this this final stage in this prophecy. And I just want to remind you of my interpretive approach to this very difficult and complicated passage that has varied understandings is simply this. I view the 77s as symbolic. I view this to be about Jesus, that he is Messiah, and Messiah is prophesied coming here. And Messiah is the one who fulfills all the types and shadows of the Old Testament that, that points to this anointing one that will come to completely restore God's people. And I believe this is about Jesus' first advent where he accomplished everything necessary to redeem God's people, this full and complete restoration, and to bring about a new covenant, a better covenant, as we've already read about in Hebrews, and initiate and establish the New Testament age that goes forth until the second coming. And so I believe in this prophecy, it is about Jesus, it is about the events of the first century, but it also looks beyond the first century. 
to the day of consummation. So let's look at verse 24. These are the messianic works of Christ that we find outlined here. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. I want us to make sure that when we hear that phrase, new covenant, that we're not thinking about something new, but rather we're thinking about something that has been in effect that is now fulfilled. It's very important that you understand that principle as we go forth. So in verse 24, we find the first three works, which I have classified as negative, although it's not a bad thing. It's just that they deal with something negative, and they deal these first three works deal with our sin, that here this anointed one would come and finish or restrain the transgressions. He would come and put an end to sin. He would come and atone for iniquity. The great Old Testament scholar E.J. Young said this, sin is here pictured as transgression, sin, iniquity, These three words well represent in its fullness the nature of that curse that has separated man from God. And we've already sung this morning about the curse, and here we find that Christ has abolished the ramifications of that curse, the curse of the fall for God's people. He has restrained transgressions in that he so authoritatively worked that sin no longer separates us from God. He has put an end to sin so powerfully that sin no longer enslaves us. He has atoned for iniquity so completely that the guilt has been removed. In Hebrews 9.26 we read, But as it is, he, that is Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And that Scripture summarizes what Christ has done in these three works that we find taking place in that 70th week, the cross. And then we find three works that are more positive and that they bring about a positive reality. Now, forgiveness of sin is positive, but but let's look at these these positive works that Christ does. He brings everlasting righteousness. He seals both vision and profit. He anoints the most holy place, as we find in verse 24. And as we reflect upon the, the, the fact that He brings an everlasting righteousness, this points to the fact that when Christ came and shed His blood on the cross to take away the guilt of our sin to pardon us, that's His passive obedience We also know that he actively lived a perfect life, that he is the only righteous one that has ever walked on the face of this earth. And so when you put it all together, he comes and brings the everlasting righteousness. He comes and brings the ability for God's people, for sinners to be justified solely upon his merits, his his pardon of sin, his taking our sin and paying for it, His living a perfect life, His righteousness imputed to us. And that's what God revealed to Daniel as one of the works of Messiah to bring an everlasting righteousness. And if you've been justified, you are justified from today and for the rest of eternity. And guess what? You can't lose it. Because why? Your justification is not based on you. It's based on a perfect pardon 
and a perfect righteousness is based on the merits of Christ. It's everlasting. Now, isn't that joyous news? And then secondly, we find he seals up visions and prophecies. What does that mean? It simply means this. Christ fulfilled every vision and prophecy in the Old Testament. Christ fulfills every promise given. Christ fulfills the Bible. The Bible is about him. He is the divine logos. He is the word of God. Hebrews says it best in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. In the last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the last word. And not only does he bring an everlasting righteousness and seals up visions and prophets, but he's the anointed most holy place. And the term most holy here, just your mind should immediately go to the holy of holies in the, in the temple. And there's no evidence in scripture that the holy of holies or the temple that was built upon Mount Moriah was ever anointed. It was dedicated, but it was never anointed Because that temple pointed to the real temple. That holy of holies pointed to the holy of holies. That structure built by the hands of men and restored by the hands of men points to a temple, to a sanctuary, to a holy of holies not made by human hands. As Hebrews says, it's in the heavenly. In fact, that temple pointed to Jesus, and Jesus is the anointed temple. We are reminded at his baptism there as John had Jesus come be baptized and poured water on him. God the Father validated Jesus' mission as his Son and Messiah, and God the Holy Spirit came down upon him, anointing Hebrews 8 verses 1 and 2. Now the point And what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The true tent, the true tabernacle, Jesus in the heavenly throne room. And this is the work of Jesus. This is the work of the anointed one. This is the work of Messiah that takes place during this 70th week, the work that is necessary for a complete and full redemption and restoration of God's people. And I want us to turn to the details of, of how these six works are kind of fleshed out in these events that we find in verses 26 and 27. I find here two events and two results the anointed one would be cut off. The city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. A strong covenant will be made. And an end will come to sacrifice and offerings. And so let's look at these in verse 26. After this 62-week, 62-sevens, The second stage has been completed with the coming of the anointed one. There is the 70th week that takes place. 
And it says, and the anointed one, in verse 26, shall be cut off. This is a clear reference to the cross of Jesus Christ, where his sufferings, his humiliation, his death on the cross and burial cut him off. Listen to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 8, prophesying about this very thing. When he says, by oppression and judgment, he, that is, the servant of God, Messiah, Jesus, the very one we're talking about today, was taken away and asked for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And so one of the seminal events through which these six works will come about and be fulfilled is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's prophesied right here in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. And the second thing that we see, the second event, is that the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary that had been built and rebuilt would be destroyed. And notice what it says, destroyed by not the prince, but the people of the prince. Now, I believe the prince is identified as General Titus Vespasian, and the people that actually did the destroying are his army, the Roman army. And in 70 AD, Titus led his army, and they sacked Jerusalem. In fact, they penetrated that, that what was considered to be an impenetrable wall around Jerusalem at the area just at the foot of Mount Scopus, where the invading armies would go up on this mountain, and they're able to look down into the city, and that was the, most, that was the weakest point of that wall. And that's where Titus breached the wall, and the city fell, and the temple was destroyed. And the artifacts of the temple were taken back and presented to the emperor in tribute there in Rome. The city was destroyed. And we see in the latter portions of verse 26 that this destruction came like a flood. It speaks of war and desolation. It's It's all describing Titus's campaign to crush Jerusalem and destroy the city. So the cross and the destruction of the city, there in the midst of that 70 weeks, both essential, though certainly the cross preeminent, that these six works might be accomplished. And what resulted, we see in verse 27, very important. We don't view verse 26 and 27 chronologically, but theologically. They're describing the exact same thing. Verse 27, we just simply see what was talked about in verse 26. There's greater detail that is given. That, that the events of the anointed one being cut off in, this, in the city and the temple being destroyed first brought about, as we see in verse 27, in this phrase, and he, that is Messiah, shall make a strong covenant for many for one week. Now what's interesting about that is that the classic way the Bible talks about making a covenant, literally cutting a covenant, is not the language that's used here in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. It's just saying that a covenant was made using other language. And what's important for us to grasp is that this covenant that is made, that's, that's indicated in verse 27, is not something new. It's the covenant that had been in effect, had been in effect since the fall of man is now being fulfilled in the midst of the 70 weeks by the anointed one. So think of fulfillment 
not something new. Hebrews 8, as we read this morning, the passage ends with that there's a new covenant coming and it makes the old one obsolete. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, we read, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Think of fulfillment of the covenant of grace as we think about this work of of Christ as the mediator of a new covenant. As I said earlier, he comes and he fulfills the covenant of grace in both his active and passive obedience. And he fulfilled it so that the whole of the 70th week might come about for God's people and that the covenant blessings might be offered to sinners and that the people of God who are under that covenant might during the whole period of the 70 weeks enjoy the blessings of this new and better and fulfilled covenant through the mediator Jesus Christ. Messiah Jesus was cut off in order to fulfill the covenant of grace, that complete restoration and joy might be for God's people. And so the the first result is covenant. And the second result in verse 27 is abrogation. And we see this phrase in verse 27... And for half of the week, he, that is Messiah, shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, we know, we should know, that putting an end to sacrifice and offering is is a direct result of the atoning work of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That is something that should be so very, very clear to us. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10 and verses 11 and 12, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Surely Jesus has abrogated the entire sacrificial system, the ceremonial law and the cultic or national law along with it that we find in the Old Testament. He has put an end to it. Thank God. God be praised. Because if He had not put an end to it, you and me, instead of celebrating a bloodless rite, would be slaughtering animals on this table. Not once a month, by the way. We need it a whole lot more often. Remember the morning and evening sacrifices every day? Think of how much blood that was spilt. But how else might God put an end to sacrifices and offerings? During the earthly ministry of Christ, as he was walking on this earth, as he was actively obeying and ministering, there are actually two things in effect. There was the, the beginning of the new covenant, but the old covenant continued. And so while if we date the, the formal beginning of the 70th week with the baptism of Jesus, when we, we, and which I think is, is reasonable to do, 
then the Old Testament continues, but then Christ establishes the new covenant and does that work. Then even after the death of, to get this, even after the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, there were still animals being slaughtered at the temple from around 33 A.D. until 70 A.D., that there were both of these covenants going on. But a time came where the old covenant ceased. And let me tell you something. God means business to restore his people. And it's reflecting the fact that he not only ended primarily sacrifices and offerings for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, but he destroyed the temple so that no longer could sacrifices be made. And we see this in verse 27 when we think about Titus coming and destroying that temple. Yes, Titus is the prince and the people destroyed the temple, but wasn't it all under the sovereign work of God according to his plan to bring about a better covenant? To do something so much greater than God's people could ever imagine. It took the cross, yes, primarily, but it also took the temple becoming ruins. And here Daniel is. I I just really want us to understand this. Here, Here Daniel is pleading with God. Build, rebuild the temple. He was given this answer at the time of the evening sacrifice He was so pleading, oh God, I long for the day that I'm able to go to the temple and and witness that blood spilled once again. Rebuild your temple. And this is what God showed him. Daniel, the temple will be rebuilt and I'm going to destroy it. (laughs) Because I've got something so much better for you than a physical temple And a sacrificial system where you have to keep slaughtering animals and spilling their blood day in and day out. I've got a better way, a better covenant, fulfilled covenant for you. And this plan is so definitive that the temple was destroyed. And I was there at the wailing wall, and I put my hand upon those stones that were put in place between 970 and 937 B.C., And that's all that's left of that temple. And today, it hasn't been rebuilt. Today, on the graves of faithful Jews, there's a rubble of stones lamenting the fact that the temple is still in ruins and no more sacrifices are taking place. It's an amazing reality. And do you really think God means business about his plan of restoration, not only is the temple destroyed and has it been rebuilt, but the temple mount is under the control of Islam. One of the most sacred places of Islam is the Dome of the Rock that covers the actual place where Solomon's temple set. You can actually go in. I've been told they won't allow people like you and me in there. But you can actually see the footings for Solomon's temple. It's under control of the religion of Islam and Jews can't even go in that place 
Not only did God destroy the temple, but he made it so that it will never be rebuilt. And the Jews gathered today to lament the temple. And I stood there, and I just remember standing there as I had Jews on either side of me. The place was crowded. I had my hands on those stones. And they were in prayer and bowing and putting prayers of lament in the cracks. And I was giving thanks to God. That that, that there's a once-for-all sacrifice that has taken away the guilt of my sin. There's a once for all, there, there is a Messiah that lived a perfect life and has given, given me his righteousness. And I don't need a, a, a physical temple. I don't need a sacrificial system. Hebrews says there's a once for all sacrifice. They were wailing. I was praising. And this is what God was showing Daniel. It's no wonder, is it? That when God brought his answer to Daniel, it was at the time of the evening sacrifice. Because God was showing Daniel, Daniel, I've got something so much better in store for you and my people than what the evening sacrifices were all about. Though they pointed to this reality, so they were effective and effectual in that particular day. And Daniel looked off on the horizon and he saw destruction. But yet he also saw God promising that there would be a greater fulfillment than he has ever expected. I want us to end our time by looking at this fulfillment. It'll be just relatively brief here. What is this something better? What, how, do, how should we understand, really how should we understand this term that we've been talking about? I, I bet I've said it tens of times. Seventy-sevens. What's in that term that, that should get us really excited about this wonderful, full, complete plan that God has for us? I want to reflect upon that for just a moment. The term 77s is central to our understanding of the prophecy. Yeah, let's just think about the number 7. Let's think about the number 10. Both of these numbers represent completeness and fullness. The number seven points us to that sabbatical pattern that we see so clearly in Scripture. God worked six days, he rested seven. He called his people to work six days to rest on the seventh. But not only the people, but the land rested on that seventh day. Dr. Klein said this about Hebrews 4, which speaks about the, the, the true... Our Sabbaths point to the true Sabbath that is coming one day. Klein says this, that the Sabbath function as a prophetic symbol for God's people of the consummation of the, of the Messianic age of redemptive liberation, restitution, and rest. The promise, Hebrews says, of entering that full and complete and consummated rest. And then I want to look at a third aspect. Not only is the numbers 7 and 10 complete and fullness, that's what they represent in the Bible. Not only do we see a sabbatical pattern here in Daniel chapter 9, the, the whole passage is in a sabbatical pattern, but, but we also see the Jubilee. And as we conclude this series today, let me just say a few words about 
Leviticus chapter 25 and verses 8 through 12. Seven sevens equals 49 sevens. And then there's the 50th, if my math is correct. In Leviticus chapter 25, we're told that, that, that the sabbatical pattern, that after seven years, there is to be release of captives and, you know, after seven years, there's to be some restitution and restoration. But after 49 years, the 50th year, there's to be a return of property to its original owner, as we find distributed by the Mosaic law. There's to be a release from, of Jewish slaves. There's to be a cancellation of debt. The land is to lie fallow the entire year. In other words, the Jubilee time, that 50th year, was a time of social justice and equity, freedom and pardon, release and restoration. The 50th year was a shadow and a type of the ultimate jubilee, the ultimate redemption, release, restoration, and renewal of God's people. And we find embedded in this term 77s something that's incredible. It's just not seven sevens, but it's 77s. In other words, just not one jubilee, but ten jubilee eras. Again, if my math is correct, 10 times 49 equals 490. 10 jubilee patterns. God is saying, Daniel, I'm not only going to give you what would equate to one jubilee, I'm going to give you something even greater than that, what equates to 10 jubilees. In other words, Daniel, you're focused on the physical city and the physical temple, but I'm going to do something in an ultimate sense that will last for eternity. The prophet Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2, it's on the top of your worship order in the bulletin. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah 61 is what we see taking place in the 70th week. The Jubilee, 10 Jubilees worth of redemption and restoration of God's people. And what's amazing is that Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, came to Nazareth. And what, what did he do? He went to the synagogue and he unrolled the scroll. And he read the very passage from Isaiah 61 that I just read. And then Jesus said this to those there at the synagogue. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus said, I'm the Jubilee. I'm what Isaiah was pointing to. The full and complete restoration And here's the lesson for you and me today. Depending on how you look at the 70th week, we can say this, that in the midst of the 70th week, Jesus accomplished those six works 
that bring about a full and complete restoration. We see the completeness and the, and the finality of it, not only in the cross, but also in the destruction of the temple. In other words, there really is an end to sacrifices, plural, because of the one sacrifice that was given. And in so doing, he fulfilled the covenant of grace, fulfilled every stipulation of it, so that you and me, in union with him, would be viewed as covenant keepers in full for the rest of eternity. Think about that. And what about the second part of the 70th week? Again, depending on how you see that, Jesus had completely fulfilled everything. I just simply see that as the offer of all that Christ did being made to sinners to come and trust him and have faith in him, but also it's an era where God's people enjoy in full the blessings of that covenant through Christ. He is our jubilee. And even today, in him, we experience that rest. Dr. Klein writes this, the 10 jubilee framework, that is the 490 years or 70 weeks, is thus symbolic of the divine work of redemption at the conclusion of which the eternal perfected jubilee will appear, the new heavens and new earth. And let me just say this, I do not think it is consistent with the prophecy to think that there's still something left to be accomplished at the end of time. It has all been accomplished in the first half of the 70 weeks. And brothers and sisters, today is the day to rest and enjoy our jubilee. It's amazing to me that my, my hope, your hope, rests in an old rugged cross and a pile of rubble because we, we have something better. Let's pray. Our Father uh, so worked that the realities of the Messianic age, the realities of Christ our Messiah who accomplished everything for God's people to be fully restored impress upon us today that we have now, by grace through faith, the realities of what the prophet Isaiah spoke about in that great chapter 61, a full and complete restoration. We, we know one day when Christ comes back, all that's been done will be consummated. We look for that day. But Lord, today, give us hope in the cross and the destruction of the temple that we might rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ who put an end to sin, who put an end to sacrifice, who has freed us and liberated us to enjoy the covenant blessings that he has provided and so lavishly pours out upon us. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.